morning. Morning. Clear. Man, Flo, I, I tried, man. I tried. <laughs> Look, the earlier service, um, I mistimed when I was supposed to come up the earlier service. Um, I did it during the offering song. Now, you can imagine how long the second song is because it was basically just two feet underneath those, uh, those monitors swinging around waiting for a song to end. So I, I thought I timed the second one uh, correctly, but I still kind of end up being a little awkward. So I'm clearly not Curtis Jones. Good morning. So, so if, um, if you were on a website or on Facebook and you saw a picture uh, that you assumed was Curtis Jones and you saw me walk up on the stage this morning uh, expecting to see something similar than the picture you saw online, uh, let me assure you it is not the lighting in the picture that you saw online, <laughs> nor did we use a stock photo of somebody who looks like a good Christian church pastor uh, to purport to be Curtis Jones. Uh, Curtis Jones is not here. He is uh, at the um, Cyprus uh, campus this morning. Uh, my name is Kirtland Jones. I'm Curtis's twin brother, <laughs> and I am here to, to... Okay, people are looking at me like, you're, not, you're supposed to tell the truth in church. Okay, I am, I am Chilobi Colombo. Uh, my wife uh, and I, uh, Megan, have been attending here for uh, several months. Uh, we, come, we live in Sugarland. Um, we moved to Texas back in 2008, 2008, uh, by way of Pennsylvania. I was born and raised in Zambia. I don't know if anybody knows where Zambia is. It's uh, in sub-Saharan Africa, kind of southeast part of sub-Saharan Africa. And so, um, man, every time I think about that, um, it just kind of tears me up a little bit because um, from a kid from sub-Saharan Africa to be here in Sugarland, well, in Memorial now, um, it's just amazing um, how far God has brought us. But Amen. we're here. We're here this morning. I'm thankful. I'm thankful to be on this side of heaven. Because uh, there's a whole host of people who would have loved to be on this side of heaven this morning that are not here. Uh, so I'm truly thankful. I'm truly thankful for the opportunity to share a little bit uh, as we continue through the book of Mark. So if you, if you have your Bibles, um, turn with me to Mark chapter 10. Um, we're, we were in Mark chapter 10 last week. Uh, we're just going to go several paragraphs down. Uh, Mark chapter 10, to a story that I'm sure a lot of us are pretty familiar with. It's the story of the rich young ruler. Mark chapter 10. I'm going to start reading in verse 17. Uh, Curtis told me I had about 30 minutes, so I'm going to try to stick to that. Verse 17, it says, Now as he was going out to the road, one came running and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? So Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. You know the commandment, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and your mother. And he answered him and said to him, teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. Then Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, one thing you lack, go your way, sell whatever it is that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come and take up the cross and follow me. But he was sad at this word and went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Then Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for those who have riches to enter in the kingdom of God. And his disciples were astonished at these words. 
But Jesus answered and said to them, children, how hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they were greatly astonished, saying amongst themselves, who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, with all men, it is impossible, but not with God. For with God, all things are possible. Amen. Um, I really just want to make one point this morning, and so if you have in your notes and uh, you want to take this down, this is the point that I'm really trying to get across, is when God speaks to us, he is not merely looking for us to be convicted, he is looking for us to be transformed. Let me repeat that. When God speaks to us, he's not merely looking for us to be convicted, he is looking for us to be transformed. Let's open in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to be here. Uh, We thank you for the opportunity to be in this place. Uh, We thank you for the freedom that you've given to us in Christ Jesus to worship you. Uh, So we take this opportunity to praise you, to glorify you, to honor you for who you are. We ask, God, that you speak to us this morning. God, all of us come in with a whole host of needs. But at the end of the day, God, we know that only you can satisfy. We all need Jesus Christ. So step in, God, where we are weak. And speak to us this morning. We ask and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus is on the move in this text. Jesus is in Judea. And he had a conversation. We, we heard about that last week with the Pharisees concerning divorce. And now Jesus is on the move. His final destination is Jerusalem. Before he gets there, he's going to pass through Jericho. And he's going to pass through Bethany. And, but he knows that just a few weeks away... Uh, he is going to reach Jerusalem, and the purpose, the culmination of the purpose of his coming to earth shall come to pass. His popularity is at its peak, but the disdain for him amongst the religious elite is also at its peak. And all of this is headed for a collision course in Jerusalem. The Bible says as Jesus is walking from Judea to Jerusalem, suddenly a man runs up to him and throws himself down on the ground. Matthew chapter 19 verses 20 tells us that this man is young. Luke chapter 18 and verses 18 tells us that this young man is a ruler. All three gospels tell us that he is rich. And thus the name of the story, the rich young ruler. He is a powerful man. He is an influential man. He is a wealthy man. He's called a, a ruler. And because of the times they were in, they were under Roman occupation. This doesn't mean that he was a ruler per se, but he was a ruler in the synagogue. So we know that this man is a deeply religious man. And he has been elevated to such a position to be a ruler in the synagogue at such a young age. Because typically those positions were reserved for people who were much older. So this is the kind of guy that everybody envied. He was the Mark Zuckerberg of the menorah. He was like a first century Dookie Hauser. This was the guy that everybody wanted. But this was the guy that got all the degrees from the right places. This is the guy that made partners in in, in a firm at a very young age. This was the guy that had beaten the curve, and he stayed ahead. In addition to achieving this kind of societal status of respect and spiritual status, he came across as pretty much a respectful, non-argumentative, likable kind of guy. Unlike his contemporaries, by the way, who were the Pharisees and the teachers teachers of the law who were always antagonizing Jesus Christ, the Bible tells us that this particular man comes to Jesus and he kneels down in front of him. He obviously has heard about Jesus. He's probably even heard Jesus because he's probably been part of the crowd that has followed Jesus. And at the very least, he's probably even witnessed some of Jesus' miracles. 
But he sees Jesus not as a Messiah, not as the Savior, the Son of God, but simply as one that's reached this kind of summit of spirituality, this peak of perfection, this high point of holiness. To him, he's a spiritual guru, per se, and that's why he calls him good teacher. Off the bat, Jesus recognizes the disposition of this young man. And he knows that this young man doesn't have the slightest clue who he is. And he tells this young man, he said, don't call me good. Who are you calling it? Nobody is good but God. Jesus is not denying his deity per se. All he's doing is he's correcting the young man's perception that goodness is as a result of achieving works. It's a status that you can reach by following, by doing good works and performing things a certain way. The truth of the matter is the Bible tells us in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, that it is by grace that you and I are saved through faith, not of ourselves. It is a free gift of God, not of works, lest any of us should boast. This is obviously in contradiction to this young man's idea of salvation and his understanding of what it means to be saved as made evident by the, how he, he, he structures his question to Jesus. And he says this, he says in verse 17, he asks, what shall I do so that I may inherit eternal life? This guy isn't really looking for salvation. He's looking for affirmation. He's looking for Jesus to co-sign the formula that he thinks can bring him success so that he can fine-tune his own redemptive plan. Which, by the way, was pretty, was pretty common in that, in that day and time. The, the contemporary understanding of, of salvation and the relationship with God and redemption was this. If you followed the law, if you gave sacrifices in the temple, maybe, just maybe, you might make the cut. And so he performed this. And Jesus says, okay, I understand the premise that you're coming to me with. And so let me humor you. You know the law. It says, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor thy father and thy mother. And, and the young man likes what he hears so far. So he responds in confidence with Jesus. And he says, look, I've been doing this stuff since my youth. In other words, he feels validated. And by all indication, he has the right to feel validated. Because the Bible tells that, that he's rich, that he's young, and he's a ruler. His understanding of the reward for obedience is riches. His understanding for, his reward, for the reward for obedience is leadership. And so because he is of that status, he feels validated. And yet he still feels incomplete. So much so that he feels like he still needs to ask Jesus, what more can I do? Because that's what the law does, folks. This trying to strictly adhere to a performance-based religion, the law, leaves us all empty, leaves us all feeling empty at one point in time. Because the law was never meant to lead to salvation. It was meant to be a mirror showing you and I how sinful we are so that we look to the Savior for salvation. The truth of the matter is a mirror can only show us how dirty we are. It cannot clean us. Only Jesus can do that redemptive work, that cleaning So the rich young man comes to Jesus, and Jesus says, okay, that's great. You've been doing this since you were were of age. But if it's salvation that you're really looking for, one more thing I require of you. Get rid of the stuff that defines you, your possessions. Sell all of your possessions and give that to the poor. Then come and follow me. The irony of Jesus' statement is he's not saying anything different 
than what the young man thinks he's been doing. All Jesus is doing is he's basically, in a practical sense, fleshing out the Ten Commandments. Because the first set of commandments really spoke to our honoring God, our loving God. The second set of commandments, uh, second five or six commandments, spoke to our love and our relationship with others. In Mark chapter 12, the Pharisees come to Jesus and say, you know, which one is the greatest commandment? And Jesus says, look, the greatest commandment is this. You honor, you love the Lord with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And then you love your neighbor as yourself. And all Jesus is doing in this statement, asking this man, is he's saying, you have to love the Lord your God with your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And that translates into giving everything up and follow me. You have to love your neighbor as yourself. And that translates into selling all your possessions and giving to the poor. So the rich young man, he hears this. Man, it tears him up. And the Bible tells us that he walks away sorrowful. And the reason that he walks away sorrowful is underneath this religious exterior is really a hidden idol. His wealth had become his identity. And yet there was still something missing. And Jesus, in his conversation, gets to the heart of the issue. And when he hears this, he doesn't like what he hears. And so he walks away. The truth of the matter is, in this current age, we are more, you and I, especially me, are more like the rich young ruler than we would care to admit. Apart from our selfish nature, our inherent sinful selfish nature that we have genetically, we're predisposed to really try to please ourselves. We're predisposed to seek self-satisfaction. We're predisposed to put ourselves number one. Apart from all of that, if you've traveled to a third world country and you've seen how people live compared to us, you would understand that we're pretty rich. 50,000 people today would die from hunger. 20 million people this year would die from the effects of poverty. About half of the people live under, under $2 a day. If you don't find yourself in that statistic, which I don't find myself in that statistic, then comparatively speaking to the church Catholic, which is the entire church of God on this earth, I'm pretty wealthy. So as much as I might want to avoid this message, this message is really for me. As I was preparing this message, I, I sat and I was in my office this week. And um, I, went, I was going through pictures and um, I, I, I came across a picture that a friend of mine um, had sent me. It's a picture of me a long, long, long time ago uh, in high school. Uh, it was me and a bunch of my friends. You know, I think there was probably about 10 or 12 of us uh, back in Zambia. We went to a boarding school. And, and I thought, man, I'm going to put this picture up for folks to kind of see that picture, to kind of give them an illustration of what I looked like when I lived in the third world versus what I look like when I live in the U.S. And I spoke to my wife, and I said, hey, you know, I want to put that picture up. She knew the picture I was talking about. I said, it's going to be a great picture. I feel like the Lord is telling me, the Holy Spirit is saying he's going to, you know, I need, I need to put that picture up. And my wife is like, I don't know what you think, but I think it's a crazy idea. And I said... You will listen to me as the head of this household <laughs> and as someone who's led by the Spirit. And my wife looked at me and said, I think it's a crazy idea. So the moral of the story is the picture is not here this morning. So I'm just going to have to narrate the picture for you. There's about 10 of us <clears throat> in this picture. And man, we're looking like African. 
Like, and I'm, I, I'm from Africa, so. Um, like, tuxedo pants and cleats African, like that combination. And a lot of you are looking at me like, what is tuxedo pants and cleats? Like, you know those tuxedo pants with like the silver lining? Yeah. And you put on some cleats with a little bit of silver on there and you go to church. Like, that's a clean look, man. I don't care what you guys think. Like, that is a clean look. And I was looking at that picture and, and, and a couple of things jumped out at me. Like, I realized that two of the people on that picture had died. And, 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 and the circumstances of their death were that if they were in a first world country like, like me, they would have survived. I realized in that picture that some of my high school buddies who had come out from the villages to go to high school went back to the villages. And they were subsistence farmers. They were just farmers in the villages. And it reminded me of my own history growing up um, and my family, my extended family growing up. Every time I go to Zambia, if I get the opportunity, I'll go visit my, my cousins. And they live without running water and electricity in villages. This is my flesh and blood. And I realized when I sat in the office that the 17-year-old Cholobi from Zambia would probably not recognize the much older than 17-year-old Cholobi (laughs) in the U.S. um, Because I've changed. And I don't know if I've changed for the better, to be honest. What I do know is this. I do know my prayers are different. I no longer go up to God and say, God, I need you to come through for me. I need provision from you, God. Because I know that I can drive down to Cadence Bank and I I can withdraw some money from Cadence Bank. I no longer go to God and say, God, I, I need some food. I have nothing in my locker room, in my dormitory. I am hungry. I need you to come through for me. Because I know that I can drive down to Chick fil A and pick myself a sandwich. For better, for worse. But I know that having a little bit of money, and, not, and I don't have a whole lot, but having a little bit of money might not have helped me as much as I thought it's helped me. Because it's changed my perception and my relationship with God. And I'm not saying that money is the issue for everybody. We might have different kind of idols. Some of us, it might be relationships. Some of us, it might be our job. Some of us, it might be social circles that we run in. Some of us might be status. Some of us might be some kind of depreciable asset, some kind of object that we revere. But if we, were to be, if we were to be honest with ourselves, and most importantly honest with God, we would, know, we would say that we do have some personal idols that compete with Jesus Christ for our time, our resources, and our affection. Truth of the matter is we want eternal life. Yes, we do. But we only want it if it comes as an add-on to the things that we cherish. If God tells us to forsake the things that, are, that we cherish, nine times out of ten, we'll probably walk away from it. But if God says, I can append eternal life to the stuff that you love, we're on board. So every so often we hear a message that challenges us or even convicts us of our attitude towards Jesus Christ. And like the rich young man, we might maul it over a little bit. We might have a discussion with somebody. We might post something on Facebook. Man, I really loved Curtis's message about divorce. It spoke to me. But at the end of the day, if it doesn't lead us into transformation, how different are we really from that rich young ruler? 
Truth of the matter is the sacrifice of hidden idols is a great struggle that very few win because it involves a cost that very few of us are willing to make. So Jesus looks at the man and he's like, man, it is hard for somebody who trusts in riches to enter the kingdom of God. In other words, it's impossible for someone like that whose priorities lie elsewhere to enter into the kingdom of heaven. That throws the disciples off because any Jew worth their salt knew about Deuteronomy chapter 28. In Deuteronomy chapter 20, in Deuteronomy chapter 28, the children of Israel are in the, in the deserts of Moab, and they're about to enter the kingdom, they're about to enter the promised land for the second time. And Moses is speaking to the children of Israel and giving them instructions on what they need to do if they want to be blessed by God. Let me just read an excerpt of that, Deuteronomy chapter 28. It says this, Now it shall come to pass if you diligently obey the voice of the Lord to observe carefully all his commandments, which I command you today. The Lord, your God, will set you high above all the nations of the earth. And all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you because you obey the voice of your Lord, your God. And Deuteronomy then goes on and lists out the type of blessings that they would receive for obedience. Health, children, wealth, the type of uh, uh, curses that they would subsequently receive if they were disobedient to God. Death, disease, and even enslavement. So prosperity was really seen as an approval from God. And therefore, it was the rich who were seen as the best candidates for salvation. So the, and the, the disciples knew that, right? And so when Jesus says, man, it's hard for somebody like that, they were like, whoa, wait. Because at the end of the day, that mentality is really intrinsic in our human nature, right? Not just in their time, but in our time, Right? We love numbers, we love crowds, we love full parking lots, that's great. We love movements, we love acclaim, we love celebrity, and none of that stuff is bad really in itself. But Jesus is saying, my kingdom isn't about perception or about performance. My kingdom is not even about works or conviction. My kingdom is about a wholehearted love for God and a selfless love for others. Everything else is inconsequential. The disciples are mulling over this, and Peter and Jesus have a conversation later on about it. And Peter tells Jesus, hey, I, we've given up everything to follow the kingdom. And Jesus says, well, surely you'll get a great reward for that. Um, but they're still perplexed by this, right? And I love that Jesus does not leave them hanging. Mark kind of skips over this story and moves on to another story. But Luke, because the story is also found in Luke chapter 18. In Luke chapter 19, and if you have, you can turn with me to Luke chapter 19. Jesus and his disciples continue on that journey, and they're in Jericho now. And in Jericho, they come across this man named Zacchaeus. Now, Zacchaeus was, similar to the rich young ruler, rich. But Zacchaeus was a tax collector. And so Zacchaeus was not only rich, this dude was filthy rich. And not only was he filthy rich, though, he was filthy rich and a sinner, But watch the exchange that happens between Jesus and Zacchaeus in Luke chapter 19. Start with verse 1. It says, Then Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. And now behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus who was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. And he sought to see who Jesus was, but could not because of the crowd, for he was was of short stature. So he ran ahead and climbed into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was going to pass that way. 
And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him and said to him, Zacchaeus, make haste, come down, for today I must stay at your house. So he made haste and he came down and received him joyfully. But when they saw it, they all complained, saying, he is gone to be a guest with a man who was a sinner. Then Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Lord, look, I give away half of my goods to the poor. And, I've ta- and if I've taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore fourfold. And Jesus said to him, today salvation has come into your house because, because he also is the son of Abraham. For the son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. So let's juxtapose these two men. We have the rich young ruler on one side who is rich, but he's respected by the community. We have Zacchaeus on the other side who is rich, but he's hated by the community. We have a rich young ruler who is rich, but he's religious. And we have Zacchaeus who is downright a sinner who's flourishing in sin. Clearly, Jesus doesn't have a problem with either men being rich. Jesus doesn't even have a problem with the fact that Zacchaeus is a sinner. What Jesus is interested in is, now that you have met me, what is your response going to be? Now that you have come into contact with me, are you willing to make the necessary changes in your life to be obedient to my call? Zacchaeus, he gets it, right? He realizes that the treasure in front of him is far greater than any riches and wealth that he can accumulate on his home. And so Zacchaeus does what he needs to do. He gives everything up, every idol that's holding him back, and he says, I'm going to commit to following you. And Christ says, you know what? Salvation has come to your home because you too are now adopted into the family of God. It doesn't matter what's stacked up against you, Zacchaeus. It doesn't matter what your history is. It doesn't matter what you did yesterday, Zacchaeus. It doesn't matter what kind of person you are. But because you've responded to the call of me in your life, you now can be adopted into the family of God. You know why? And the disciples know this. Because Jesus said in, the, he said in Mark, he said, with men it is impossible, but with God all things are possible. So the question I want to pose this morning is this. How do, we, how do you and I move from merely being convicted when we hear God speaking into our lives to being transformed. How do we not become like the rich young ruler and instead be like Zacchaeus? Two quick points that we can kind of add on to the the primary point. You and I cannot allow shame to hinder us from going after Jesus Christ because because the stakes are really too high. We cannot allow shame to hinder us from going after Jesus Christ. The second thing is you and I have to be obedient to God's instruction to be intentional and be intentional about changing. When God gives us instruction, we have to respond by being intentional about being changed. Transformation takes a work of God combined by passionate spiritual discipline. We have to persevere in prayer, folks. We have to persevere in study. We have to persevere in the things that God has called us. And that's plain and simple. We need to be intentional. Because the truth of the matter is God is only going to take us as seriously as we take him. He's going to come after us with a passion. But our our response to him dictates our growth and our transformation. And he's only going to take us as seriously as we take him. Now, I just want to close on this. The, 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 
this message is a pretty tricky message, you know, because I've heard it preached in kind of more of a progressive sense, you know, where, you know, Jesus is against the rich, where Jesus has a problem with money. I don't know what you think about that. You know, you're, you're, you're open to your opinion. But let me just say this. It clearly, clearly, because of the interaction that he has with Zacchaeus, Jesus doesn't have a problem with the fact that Zacchaeus is rich. In fact, when the people, the, it's the people who have a problem with the fact that Zacchaeus is rich and a sinner, not Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ tells Zacchaeus, I am coming to your house in spite of who you are. In spite of anything that you've done, I am coming to your house. Jesus also didn't have a problem with the rich young ruler. And in fact, the contrary is true in the case of the rich young ruler. If you look back in verse 21, there's an interesting line in verse 21. It says this, Jesus looking, up, Jesus looking at him, loved him and said to him. Now, there are very few verses or there are very few instances in the New Testament where the Bible points out Jesus' particular affinity towards somebody. Very, very few. Mary and Martha and Lazarus, John the Baptist, John, not, sorry, not John, John the disciple that Jesus loved, Mary, his mother. There might be a few other people that I, that I can't remember. And this guy. Like, this is the fraternity that this guy is in. With John, the disciple who Jesus loved, with Mary, the mother of Jesus. And this guy finds himself in the fraternity. And this is a guy who walked away from Jesus. And I've always struggled with that. Like, how does this guy find himself in that kind of fraternity of somebody that Jesus, that the Bible points out that Jesus particularly loved? I read a book not too long ago by Pastor Tim Keller. It's called The King's Cross. And it's basically the story of Jesus as narrated through the Gospel of Mark. And I think uh, Pastor Keller gives a very um, powerful depiction, really, of the interaction that Jesus has with this rich young ruler. Let me just read an excerpt of that, and I hope it's up there. It says this, Jesus, who at this point is about 31 years old, looks at him and identifies with him. Jesus, too, is rich. He's a rich young man, far richer than this man can ever imagine. Jesus has lived in the incomprehensible glory, wealth, love, and joy of the Trinity from all eternity. He has already left that, and he's already left that wealth behind. In other words, the creator of all things. Step down from heaven to live and to die amongst his creation. He gave up all that splendor and glory and majesty. Watch what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2. He says this. He's talking about Jesus. He says, who, begin, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in, his, in, in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Jesus looks at this man and says, you know what? Like, I, I feel your pain. I understand what it is to step away from the very thing you cherish, the very thing that defines you. I understand the calling that I'm placing on your life. I feel it because I experienced the same thing. I had to step down from the splendor of heaven. My very identity in the Father, I had to give up for this journey that I'm making to Jerusalem to bleed and to die for you. Are you willing to make a small fraction of a commitment to me in response? 
And guess what the young man does? He takes that, he mauls it over a little bit, and he walks away. And a piece of Jesus walks away with that young man. The very thing that Jesus is going to do on the cross, the young man takes that. And he says, I don't want anything to do with with it. And all for what? Momentary pleasure. A little slice of wealth. Status. For what? I don't know what happened to that young man. I don't know if he came back to his senses and he said, I realize I need Christ in my life. But I do know this. If he did not do that, that he's thinking long and hard about that now for all eternity. And so this is a question that's presented to us this morning. How do we respond to God convicting us of our need for him? How do we respond when we hear God speaking to the areas in our lives that we need to change? Do we mull it over a little bit? And say, man, it was a good message I heard from Curtis last Sunday about divorce. Because we hear that every Sunday when Curtis stands up here and preaches. Do we talk about it with our friends and then simply move on? My hope and my prayer is that we are like Zacchaeus. We're like the parable that Jesus said. He saw a treasure in a field. He went away and he sold everything he had so that he could purchase that field. May we see Jesus as an eternal treasure that's far great, that far greater outweighs anything that we can have on this side of heaven. Let's pray. God, I thank you for who you are. You're holy. You're mighty. I thank you for the opportunity, God, to hear you speak to us. I pray, God, that you speak in our lives the areas that we need to change. Speak to me, speak to us. But at the end of the day, God, may you be glorified. May your name be lifted high. We thank you and we honor you. And we ask and pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.